Welcome everybody to the extremely riveting NBA podcast. I'm Carson Brever. Today I'm joined by Zoom by Carvel Teft and we're bringing back the podcast due to extremely high demand. Tons of people remember the extremely riveting podcast in our, I believe, four episodes from a couple years ago, but we're back. And today we're going to be doing a deep look at all of our awards and all league selections because I think that it seems pretty likely that if the regular season comes back, they're just going to play to a total of 70 games, which leaves most teams with like three to five games left to play. So probably not any award-altering stuff going to happen. So we're going to go down all the awards. We're going to do all NBA, all defense. We're leaving off all rookie because who really cares? But let's start with MVP, the big one. So we're going to do our top five for each award as well. Carvel, who do you have at number one for MVP? Okay, so for number one, I had Giannis. Um, I don't think it's very disputable. Uh, obviously, the best production in the league. Um, tw- the raw stats, 29.6, 13.7, and 5.8 on 55, 30, and 63 splits. He shot uh, a pretty astounding 61% true shooting percentage, which is something we've come accustomed to with him. Um, the Bucks comfortably the best record in the league, I think by four or five games over the Lakers. Uh, they were 11.8 points better with him on the floor. He was – he absolutely – his play translated to winning. He was a wicked defender. Um, I think the only argument against him that I could think of and that I, I've ever had is that LeBron is the better player. Uh, I'd rather have him crunch time and playoff moments. But that's not – that's not a precedent anyone wants to set when voting for MVP. Giannis is the clear choice. Uh, so, yeah, I, I doubt you have much to add. Yeah, I mean – when he played, they were on a 69-win pace. His per 36 numbers, 34.5, 16, and 7. It's unrivaled production when you consider the fact that it's paired with unmatched winning around the league and the fact that he was going to be first-team all-defense. It, it's truly incredible. And when you consider the fact that his second-best player is Chris Middleton, who, yes, is an all-star level guy, not a top 10, top 15 player in the league, not an all-NBA level guy, I wouldn't yeah. say. So – to have one of the historically greatest regular season teams ever. And the raw numbers are still incredible. And I don't think he should be discredited just because the fact that he didn't actually put up 34 and a half, 16 and seven, because they were blowing teams out by 15 a game. So very clear. Number one, I think the number two is pretty clear as well. And I'm pretty sure that we both have LeBron James here. Mm -hmm. Easily. So LeBron has, I would say a similar impact on winning. You look at the on off splits, plus 10.8, which is really in that elite tier, led the league in assists with 10.6 while still averaging basically 26 points and eight boards for the 49 and 14 Lakers. It was an incredible LeBron season. I think that we saw him revolutionize his game a little bit, started to really dominate out of the post in a way that we hadn't seen previously, obviously just basically showing that he could lead the league in assists when he wants to. And it was an incredible LeBron season, but I don't think there's an argument for him above Giannis. No, I think um, I think uh, w- people get too caught up in the argument between the two because I really just think we should be appreciating LeBron at this point. I was in it, I was in bed last night going to sleep and I was literally getting scared thinking of LeBron leaving the league just because mm. I mean it's ridiculous. It's 17 years of just incredible production, so fun to watch. So for me, this was one of those seasons. He's almost out. He's got two or three years left in his prime, and we should just be appreciating the dude is. It's ridiculous, and I'm I'm very happy that he's still that we're still talking about him in MVP conversations. But Giannis definitely Giannis took this one. So I think that that's ninety percent of people, if not more, will agree on that. 
So number three, I think, is where we can really start to see some deviation between lists. I have Kawhi Leonard in my three spot. Who do you have? I have Harden, James Harden. Okay. Harden is not on my list. So why don't you make the case for Harden as number three? All right. I, I will make the case. Um, I won't disclose my four or five, but I'll, I'll say, first of all, why I had him over Kawhi. Okay. Games played. That's it. Uh, Kawhi played 51, right? Mm-hmm. Harden played 61. So Harden – Kawhi missed 10 games. That's 10 more games than Harden did. That's 20% of Kawhi's season compared to Harden that he missed. 10 out of the 50 games. Whatever. Anyways, I don't want to reward – the biggest thing for me with Kawhi is that, that he wanted to rest, right? And it's, it's definitely smarter in the long run. They could win the champ. I don't care at all. But as far as individual rewards – he wanted to rest. He wanted to take his load management, whatever it was. I'm not going to reward him for it. I'm not going to take his. I'm not going to take his stats, his his raw production at the same with the same gravity that I would at James Harden. Um, for me, James Harden had one of the most offensively dominant seasons in history. Obviously, huge, huge fall off. The first, what was it, 26 games? I want to say. No, 35 games, I, I get them mixed up. I think it was 35. The first 35 games he was at 38.5 points per game, uh, was by far the most efficient in his career. They were winning, um, and it was awesome to watch. I really liked it. And then he obviously dropped off. His, his final season stats are 34.4 points, 6.4 rebounds, and 7.4 assists on 43.5% from the field. Uh, really impressive 61% true shooting percentage. Um, and – the thing I want to address, though, uh, with why he's over my guy at number four is his low was low. They were 14 and 12 in his last 26 games. Um, he averaged 28.8 points per game on 40% from the field. Something you and I have talked about is that he was obviously double teamed. There was immense pressure. Um, that's when Westbrook was, was the star. Um, but one thing I started to think about that really started rounding out my argument is that my guy that's four, which I'll just disclose now because I pretty much have to, which is Jokic, um, who I, I think is year four, too. Uh, my guy that's four, he had a terrible start to the season, um, 16 points per game in their first 22 games. But their win percentage compared to the last 43 games is about the same in both. So Jokic ended the season on 2010 and seven. It, it, the last 43 games was – uh, whatever it was, it was like twenty-two. Yeah, last forty, last forty-six games, he's twenty-two point four, ten point three, seven point one on basically fifty-six, thirty-six, yeah. eighty-two splits. And I see it both ways. I absolutely see the Jokic argument, but we're talking about the most valuable player in the league. And when he was scoring sixteen points per game, couldn't get his ass up the court, totally out of shape. The Nuggets did. The Nuggets have a very similar win percentage to his last 43 games. So when we're talking about value, I don't value that as much as them James Harden. And I'm not, and I'm not saying James Harden should, you know, played bad and it made, it made him look better. Like that, that's no excuse to play bad, but they were 14 and 12 in his last 26 games. When his last 26 games, when he was scoring 28.8 points a night. And that is like, that is remarkable that he, to hold them to a, to home court advantage in the West, he was having to score 38.5 points per game, and of course it dropped off. But he is so, so, so 
valuable. Um, and I'm sure there are deeper things. In the, um, maybe the Nuggets' schedule was easier at the beginning of the year. What, I'm sure there are a lot of different factors at play. They're still better with Jokic on the court, much better. But um, they, they played about the same amount of games. Jokic played four more. Um, Harden was better on the floor. The Rockets were better on the floor with Harden than the Nuggets were with Jokic by, like, one point. Um, Harden had a really incredible signature performance, uh, which I love versus the Hawks when he scored 60 on, like, 67% from the field and, like, 57% from three or whatever it was. Um, so that's why I went hard. And I, it, he inched out Jokic and Kawhi for me, but uh, that's my rationale, and I'm sticking with it. What, 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 what's your rationale with Kawhi at three? I totally understand why you would not have Kawhi on there at all because I think that if you're going to use the fact – and I mentioned this when we were just discussing this casually – he's not dedicating himself to trying to compete for these awards. So I understand if that's the counter argument. I just think when you look at the fact that he averaged 27, seven and five, very efficiently, 47, 36.6, 89.9, a plus 10 on off splits, 38 and 13. The Clippers were when he played, that's a 61 win pace. And he's one of the best defenders on the planet, even for regular season purposes. I just felt like he was deserving of the third spot, even with just the 51 games played. The reason I have Harden off is because I think that everything you said is true. I do think if you look at the Nuggets schedule, it was significantly easier at the yeah. start of the season. And Mike Malone actually said, I remember distinctly, this is basically a fake good record. We are not this good. We need to get better because we haven't played the tough teams yet. But the thing with Harden is absolutely phenomenal start of the season. I think that over those past 26 games that you mentioned, which is 42.6% of the games Harden played this year, I mean, the 40% from the field, the 31% from three, just a plus 1.2 plus minus over that same stretch, Westbrook, who, yes, is liberated by the fact that Harden is getting doubled more and is also, they had to fundamentally change the structure of any basketball team we've ever seen just to enable Westbrook to reach that level of success by getting rid of any, anyone who resembled a center because he needed that much space to operate with. But Westbrook is still 32-8-7 and seven on 53% from the field has a better plus minus than Harden over that stretch. And I think that obviously the huge criticism of Westbrook early was, you know, they're terrible in the Westbrook, no Harden minutes. They're great in the Harden, no Westbrook minutes. That really started to even out as the season went on. And especially over that stretch that we're talking about. And I do think that team success is incredibly fundamental to one's MVP case. The fact that Jokic with Jamal Murray as his second guy. I love Jamal Murray. I own a shirt that you got me that says this guy loves Jamal Murray. But I think that we know how he comes and goes. You know, there are times where it looks like Will Barton is their most aggressive player. And that can include Jokic. I mean, Jokic has his passive stretches. I just think the fact that they finished as the three seed, they were in the two seed for much of the season. Whereas Harden, to me, for 40% of the season is the second best or at the very least second most productive player on a six seed that to me keeps him from that tier because for me, I mean, you can look back, you know, Kobe, when he averaged 35.6 finished fourth in MVP voting because they were the seventh seed. It's obviously Harden is on a better team than that, but it's just the precedent of team success being so fundamental. And I think that Jokic's team success is more significant, especially when you have a guy like Westbrook as your number two. So Jokic is my number four. And yes, the slump was there to start the season. But I think when you look at the fact that he rounds out to basically 20, 10 and seven on 53, 31.4, 81 splits, um, they were a 
they were a negative team overall with him off the floor, as the Rockets were with Harden, um, plus 5.6 on off splits for him. And I just think that the team success and the fact that his momentum was picking up or had picked up, whereas Harden was going downwards, I know that this is something that we disagree on. I think that I would much rather have you play your way into form um, than be struggling in the middle slash end of the season. Yeah. Um, yeah, and who knows, who knows what our picks would have been if they did play 82 mm. games. Um, just, just a couple things. Obviously, we're not going to change each other's mind on this. We've, we've talked about this for probably a month now. Yeah. But one thing, I, I don't love the Hardem wasn't the best player on his team argument. I think it's a little naive. It's like, like if you look back at Steph Curry's MVP seasons, there's going to be 10% of games where just the best player on the court was Draymond or Clay. Like, in this, we're but talking about, like, unanimous. 40. You know, all I'm saying is that it, it's, like, everybody, everybody knows if you ask any opposing player who is the best player on this team, it's going to be Harden. And you never play like it every night. I understand this is a large sample size, but, like, you have to understand the gravity of players and how they affect the game the same way that Steph running off screens can be the most valuable player in a game if he goes one for ten from three. I think the same thing applies for Harden. I think when they won, he was most likely the most important player as just far the gravity he's pulling, how he's creating spacing. It, that, that's debatable, and I totally understand that he is, he, his sample size is much larger than probably any other MVP candidate that we could think of, but I don't love the argument. And then just, uh, just to clarify to, to people on your, on your record argument, for me, I just – I value more tiers of record than I do, I guess, individual record. The Nuggets um, were 2.5 games better than the, Har- than the Rockets. It absolutely matters, but it didn't. It didn't matter enough to me when I'm when I'm splitting hairs with all this stuff to put Jokic above him. Although I t- I totally understand the argument. There are a lot of people that would be in the same camp. Yeah. Um, with that, uh, it should be an award based on production alongside winning. So. But I, I just didn't think I didn't think Jokic won to the extent where I was gonna I was gonna put him in. But who's your I I I have Jokic at four. I think we both described our our yeah. Jokic. So we both have Jokic at four. My five is Luka Doncic, and this is one where I really had to sort of consider the games played factor because Doncic played fifty four games versus Harden sixty one. But Doncic also missed 10 more games because they had the Mavericks as a team had played three more games. It just sort of became a matter of principle to me where with how much of a factor Westbrook was, and you're right, a huge factor in that is Harden's gravity and the fact that he's getting doubled. Another huge factor, though, is the fact that, I mean, I think that we saw the transformation of Westbrook to where when you don't have any, any center clogging the paint, I mean, he stops taking those terrible pull-up threes. He basically stops shooting threes and he's getting to his spots, and he is physically the most unstoppable point guard in the league, and it's not even close. Even if he's just getting down to the post and taking those little turnarounds off one foot, he really started hitting those. So that's, I mean, I really do think that Westbrook was that exceptional, and it came to the point where Luka, when you're looking at the fact that they're one and a half games worse than the Rockets on the season, they had a slightly better winning percentage than the Rockets in games Luka actually played. Um, I, I just think that the fact that this guy averaged – basically 29, nine and nine on 46, 32, 75 splits. And KP was shooting 40% for most of the season. He lost a dependable rim runner and Norman Powell. And he engineered the greatest offense ever by offensive rating and team that was fully competitive with the Rockets in the standings for this entire season and did not have on paper nearly the talent. I mean, most people weren't picking the Mavs to make the playoffs, 
And obviously part of that is just the fact that Luca improved and he doesn't get credit in the MVP conversation just because he improved a lot. But I think that he had a, I think that he had a more difficult role. I think that he was able to carry them to approximately the same team success. So it's close. I think if you really consider the games played and if that's something you value, I totally understand Harden. And I understand Harden even if you don't, but it sort of became a thing of principle where Luca is the single star, except for when KP really got going late, but Luca wasn't even playing in some of those games versus Harden who had Westbrook going off as he was. And they're still so close on team record. Yeah. So who's um, number five? I had Kawhi. Uh, this is where I drew the line with Kawhi because the other three guys I was considering were Doncic, who played around the same amount, and I think everyone would agree Kawhi's just better. So that was pretty easy for me as far as just, just having the five spot and Kawhi wasn't off my board yet. Mm-hmm. And then there was Anthony Davis. I really value being the best player on your team. I didn't really consider him too heavily. And then there was Lillard, um, who didn't make a playoff team. So I don't, want, I don't think I need to go too much into this. Uh, Kawhi is the second best player in the league, in my opinion, right now, um, with with Kevin Durant out, and we'll we'll see how that plays out. But um, he was the best player on the second team. This is the second best team in the best conference. Ridiculous production efficiency. He added things to his games that we game that we've been wanting to see for a while. I really like seeing how he how he uh, could play and make this year. He beat the Lakers a couple times, which is super impressive. Um, so yeah, Ka- Kawhi's my guy here. Uh, I-, I couldn't leave him off my ballot entirely. Yeah, I think that we can see that there's a pretty clear top six. I don't think that you could make that strong of an argument for AD just because as exceptional as he was, he's – I think you would very well argue he's a top five player in basketball, but that's not what MVP is necessarily yeah. about. Uh, and with Dame, I, he's fully off my board. I mean, you don't – what were they, 29 and 37 or something like yeah. that when that's – as incredible as he was individually, you can acknowledge that in all NBA. So – Let's move on to Defensive Player of the Year, which I think is an awesome race for this season. Who do you have winning Defensive Player of the Year right now? I have AD, uh, which um, I'm sure you would agree. The race is between AD and Giannis um, at the one and two. You could, I mean, Gobert's up there too. I don't, I don't know where you went. But mm-hmm. um, for me, it was between AD and Giannis. The thing I looked at most was just how Davis has transformed this defense, um, this Lakers team. I mean, the raw stats are great. 2.4 blocks and 1.5 steals. He's always had raw stats. But the way he disrupts everything and makes everyone else's job easier to the point where you don't eat, I mean, he just cleans everything up. You don't look at the Lakers roster and you don't even think of that many minus defenders because guys like Kuzma, who can't really stay with anyone, doesn't have great instincts, doesn't really matter. He's, he's cleaning everything up. Yeah. Um, he played in just enough games for me to justify it. 55, I was okay with that. Um, and the way he changed the team, the culture, and that's why I considered him for MVP, um, even, even a tiny bit, just because when we're talking about value, I mean, you look at what LeBron and the Lakers did last year, given LeBron missed 30 games or whatever it was, mm-hmm. and then you see how AD just invigorated this defense to a point where, um, where it's really, in crunch time, it's really hard to score on them. Uh, and obviously, super versatile, can switch on to everything. Um, I went with AD narrowly. Who do you go with? So I went with AD as well. For me, the race was actually between AD and Gobert. And it's because I still think that Gobert is the best defensive player on the planet. But to me, I think that it really matters that we look at the precedent for these awards because, you know, if we don't, then crazy things happen like the Westbrook MVP in 2016-17 where we change the criteria. And 
what the criteria for defensive player of the year has been for most of its history is best defender on the best defense or the closest thing to the best defense. It's almost always a guy on a top three defense by defensive rating. Tyson Chandler in 11-12 was the last player to win on a team that wasn't top three in defensive rating, and they were still number five. The last guy who wasn't top five was Marcus Camby back in 06-07. So it just doesn't really happen very often. And the Jazz are 11th in defensive rating. And I think when you look at a guy like AD, who I think has been the best defensive playmaker in basketball for a while when you're talking about steals and blocks, but now we see him more consistently engaged possession to possession is a guy that you can switch out onto so many people and can also protect the rim at an extremely high level. And when you look at how opponents have performed against him, when he's the primary defender, people shoot 38.5%, which is 8.3% worse than their average. That's the second um, best, that's the second largest margin among all players to defend at least 10 field goals a game. At the rim, within 16 feet, he holds opponents, or excuse me, within six feet, he holds opponents to 50% shooting. That's 11% below their normal. From three, people shoot 30.2% against them, which is 5.7% below their normal. That's the third lowest percentage allowed for people to defend at least four threes a game. It's the third biggest margin. So I just think you're looking at all three levels. His length, his effort, his intelligence is impacting everything. And while I do think that Gobert may still be the better defensive player, the precedent says go to the guy with the better team defense, and that is Anthony Davis. So at number two, it sounds like you have Giannis. So why is Giannis the guy there? Yeah, I went with Giannis uh, mainly because of Gobert's, Gobert's faults this year. I just think there was a little bit of a drop-off, which was kind of publicized a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, in just, I mean, it, you never know with these type of things. Uh, but in, in, as far as opponent field goal percentage on the rim, just their team defense in general. Um, and I think Gobert is a guy that's obviously always heavily relied on his rim protection and the fact that you can literally just funnel players into the rim and, and they're taking a bad shot at that point mm-hmm. uh, when Gobert's out there. And if, if he doesn't have that to the extent that he did, I just can't in, – in the modern NBA with how important it is to be versatile and switch out onto the perimeter, Gobert's not – inept in that sense but when you look at someone like Giannis who can guard one through five all over the place rover high effort the raw stats are there like it's I don't know opponent shot 9.7 percent worse against him than he did which is not an offensive stat but it's just like it's ridiculous That, that just shows the amount of intensity and effort um who's disrupting everything. And I just think, I think Giannis went and took it this year. Um, Gobert took a step back and his, his greatest strength was diminished. And, and from there, I just went with Giannis. Gobert's my third guy. Yeah. Um, ob- obviously he, he's, he's set a precedent that he's the best defender in the NBA. I wouldn't take that away from him just because of this mm-hmm. season, but based on this season, I went with Giannis. Yeah. I think that if you are looking Statistically, I mean, Giannis had the best defensive season. And to speak to the, to the stat that you referenced there, people shot 36.1% from the field against him. That's 9.7% below their average field goal percentage. That's the best differential in the league. At the rim, people shot 41.9% against him, which is a 19.5% differential. He was a nightmare in every way. And you mentioned the fact that he is a guy who's a massive playmaker because he's allowed to roam a little bit. The only reason that I would put Gobert above a guy like Giannis is Gobert does 
it's like his entire life is dedicated to playing defense. He contests the second most shots in basketball. He defends the most shots in basketball. People still shoot 40.2% against him, which is the fourth best differential of people to defend at least 10 field goals. People shoot 48.4% at the rim against him, where he is the fourth best differential. But I understand the honest argument. I just think that so much of the fact – and the Bucs, I mean, I was talking about the best defender on the best defense. The Bucs have the best defensive rating of the last four seasons. I mean, they are phenomenal defensively. I just think he has an easier role. And when I watch, I don't think that he has the same impact of a guy like Anthony Davis or Gobert. And a lot of that is just because I still think that it's difficult for a perimeter defender to have the same value as a rim protector. I mean, it's just – it's sort of – Simple when you think about it, there are people who are preventing other people from getting easy baskets, and that's what the ADs and the Gobert's do. And AD can even switch out onto the perimeter. Giannis is phenomenal. I just think that the Bucks, they're such an incredible team defense, and Gobert is sort of more of a one-man show. So I could see going either way there. You said you have Gobert at three. Who do you have at four? I have Bam. I have Bam out of bio at four. Uh which is a great name for Defensive Player of the Year candidate. But he, he's such an integral part of their defense. Um, the raw production there, but it's, it's way better with the eye test. If you watch them play, he's doing everything. They're not afraid to put him in any action. He can switch anywhere, off ball, on ball. Um, he seems to communicate well. He's always displaying effort. Really, really high IQ player. Obviously one of the most important parts of defense nowadays, defending the pick and roll. He can do, he can do it all over the, all over the floor. Mm-hmm. Um, I trust him in big moments. I trust him against big players. He can move his feet well on perimeter, at least well enough. Um, he's, a gr- he's a great rim protector. Uh, so I went with him. I just think it, the biggest thing with him is the eye test. When you watch him play, the dude busts his ass on defense. He's a really, really solid defender. Uh, so I, I went with him at my fourth spot. Who do you go with? So I have Bam at five, and I love Bam. Um, but my number four is Ben Simmons. That's and, my number five. Yeah. So we agree on the top five. I was really pretty heartbroken to leave Marcus Smart off my ballot entirely just because he was a guy that I was so high on. The fact that, you know, he's at times the Celtics decided he was legitimately their best option to guard guys like Jokic, Porzingis. He's just such a dog. But when it comes to Simmons, I think that he is the best perimeter defensive playmaker in basketball and that he has the quickest hands. He's the most aware of when people are sloppy with the ball and he just takes the ball from people. Leads the league in steals with 2.1 a game, third most deflections in basketball, the most defensive loose balls recovered. And then when you're looking at him as just an on-ball defender, people shot 41.3% with him as the primary defender, 4.7 worse than normal. It's, I believe, the second best differential for any guard defensively. There is certainly an argument to be made for Bam because the versatility for Bam is so exceptional. I think he moves his feet better than any defensive big man in basketball. Um, he's so versatile, and he does certainly impact. I mean, people struggle against him, 43.4% from the field, 33.8% from three. They're 5.5% worse at the rim. They're down everywhere. Um, I think that a guy that we should at least mention is Brooke Lopez because I think that he's gotten a lot of attention as the – dominant rim protector for that Bucks defense the reason that I would take a guy like Bam over him is because I just think Bam's doing a lot more I mean the nature of the Bucks drop defense is okay we'll funnel guys into Brook Brook block shots protect the rim and Bam is a guy who has to deal with so much more switching who has to 
who will take on an assignment like Giannis and will guard him as well as anyone in the NBA. And so I respect what Brooke Lopez does. He's great at what he does. I just value what Bam does more. Yeah, and not to discredit Bam, but, you know, I mean, not to discredit Brooke Lopez, but he he was thought of as kind of a poor defender yeah. um, in, in Brooklyn. So, it, I mean, you have to take that. You have to take – I don't want to take, say take his production with a great assault, but it, it's clearly more driven by the system than it is by him as an individual talent. Whereas with Bam, um, he, he's, a, he's a very, very, very solid defensive player. I went with Simmons at five. I can't argue with anything you said. I, I think probably some of me putting Bam above him as I watched a lot more Heat games. Um, he, he's incredible to watch, watch mm-hmm. live, um, Bam is. So I think – with both our – with Giannis and Gobert and Bam and Simmons, they're, they're pretty interchangeable. I agree. So let's move on to what I think is one of the more obvious races, and that's Rookie of the Year. And I can't imagine that we differ at number one. The two through five spots, there will probably be some, some deviation. But who do you have at number one for Rookie of the Year? I have Jaw at number one. Uh, clear cut. Yeah. I mean, people – it's hard because he's a, to say because he's a social media phenom, but – People underrate what he did, just leading his team to an eight seed and being that efficient for a rookie guard, uh, being that respected by his peers, making his teammates better, his teammates love him. If you listen to their YouTube clips of him mic'd up, listening to him talk with Taylor Jenkins and his teammates about all the defensive stuff, just these little little nuances in the game, it's pretty remarkable. He's just, I mean, I don't think there's any race at all. I don't think there was going to be any race at all. I don't care if the Pelicans took a playoff spot. So, yeah, I'm Jaws my guy. I'm sure I'm sure there's nothing different on your list. Yeah, I, I have been in love with John Moran for this entire season, not romantically, but as a basketball player. I remember preseason, I, we actually had a conversation about this. I was like, I think the Jaw will be a top 10 passer in basketball the day he sets foot on an NBA court because the vision is so exceptional the deceptiveness, his ability to make decisions midair. I mean, he'll jump and you'll have no idea where the ball is going, but he knows exactly where it's going. And his improvement as a shooter to shoot 37% from three, athletically, he's so dynamic. He's so difficult to stop going downhill. And, you know, they've engineered a great system for him there in Memphis where they basically just run and gun. And I think there's good personnel around him. And I think that they're building well for the future. So at number two, I think that obviously there's a prominent star that a lot of people would think of. I do not have Zion as my number two. I have Kendrick Nunn. Who do you have there? I also have Kendrick Nunn. Okay. So, I mean, I think that the case for him is pretty solid. For most of the season, he was the second leading scorer on a top four seeded team, averaging 15.6 and 3.4 on 45, 36, 84 splits. Yes, he's really reliant on his jump shot. He does not get to the line. I think shot like one and a half free throws a game. but his job is to make jump shots and he competes on defense. I think that he has winning instincts and I was really impressed with him from preseason this season when he was dropping 40 on dudes. I think he had 40 against the Rockets. And I just think that he's a guy that really contributes to winning basketball and that matters, even though he's not your traditional rookie. So why did you have none there? Well, it's hard with Zion because you don't, it's, it's just weird drawing the lines in the sand for how many games he played when he's clearly uh, the best or second best guy in this draft class. I mean, his he almost scored 24 points a game as a rookie coming off a pretty intense injury. It, it's it's ridiculous. Um, but Kendrick Nunn was just – he was at that level where he was 
important, very important to a playoff team, uh, a team that's going to have home court advantage. That, that's, I mean, that's incredible production for a rookie. Um, and I think, I think that that's where you have to kind of draw the line for me because Zion was my, was my three mm-hmm. um, with the guys that are, there's two guys up there that are genuinely contributing to playoff teams. Um, and I'm going to go with that over, over Zion's short, shortened season. So who'd you go I, with it? So I have Zion as well. And it's interesting that we sort of drew the line in the same place because I looked at it. I said, Kendrick Nunn had a great season and yes, Zion only played 19 games. He averaged 23.6 and 6.8 on 59% shooting. I think that we all know he's a guy that you give him the ball within 15 feet and he's just an unstoppable bowling ball. I mean, he just gets to the rim. People are terrified to guard him. Uh, And the question for me was, am I going to put Brandon Clark above Zion? And I couldn't bring myself to do that. And if you are going to completely count out Zion because he only played 19 games, totally understand that. But if he's going to be on your ballot, I do feel like this is a place that makes sense for him. So obviously, you know, you were, in New Orleans before all this mania happened. So, I mean, what did you see from Zion over there, and why is he number three? I mean, the thing with Zion, the biggest thing about Zion down in New Orleans was that, I mean, people were waiting for him to come back to make a playoff push, which sounded ridiculous. And then he comes back and they start making a playoff push. Like, I mean, personally, I I remember watching his first game versus San Antonio. It's – it's weird. A lot of it's really weird. Yeah. Um, you and I both agree that he play. I mean, he literally has no right hand. He yeah. hates his right hand. He is yeah. so afraid of it. And I mean, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And that is so scary because these are easy things to develop with, with NBA coaching, NBA training, mm-hmm. the conditioning, and another easy thing to develop. And when you have that spotlight and pressure, it's a whole lot easier to do it with all those eyes on you. Yeah. Um, so uh, for me, it's just – he's too transcendent of a talent to put someone like Brandon Clark, who's going to be a perennially, perennially good role player yeah. above him. Uh, I think three is the perfect spot for him. And it sounds like we both have the same four guy. I had Brandon Clark at four. Uh, so just quick about him. He's, he was ready to go from day one, efficient 12 points a game. Um, I don't think he was dominant or important enough to jump none or Williamson, but he was very consistent, contributed on a playoff team, very efficient. Uh, not a minus defensively. So, so that's where I went with, with my fourth. Yeah, I mean, Brandon Clark was great at what he did, and I think that almost everyone looked at him going 21st in the draft and thought that's a steal because this is a guy with some serious potential to contribute at the next level. 62% from the field, 40% from three. I love him in transition in Memphis's system. He's a great finisher. He's got a great floater. He shot I think much better than people expected because he was like a 27% three-point shooter at Gonzaga, I want to say. Yeah. And the thing for me is just it's 21.7 minutes per game, and his job is so much easier than everyone else in this list. I mean, he comes in and he benefits from the offense the jaw creates or maybe that DeAnthony Melton creates versus even a guy like my number five, Eric Paschal, who had to deal with being the number one option for, you know, a month of the season. And as a guy that plays hard and plays smart as well. So I think Clark is better than Pascal, but I have Pascal at five because of the role that he had to take on. So who do you have at five? We have the same list. I have Pascal at five. I thought uh, PJ Washington was the competition for me here. I just think exactly like you said, Pascal had to do way more. Yeah. Um, I watched him more and he is, I mean, he's high energy everywhere. Yeah. Um, both ends of the court. Um, doesn't really play outside himself. 
really makes some spectacular plays along the way. He's a huge energy boost for the team. Yeah. Um, can score pretty effectively in the mid-range and also just wonderfully around the rim. Mm-hmm. He was 14 points per game on 50% from the field. Uh, he's really explosive. So I gave him that. I really liked P.J. Washington's season. I really liked what he did. I liked it better than Harrow's or White's or Garland's. Um, but for me, Pascal was was a guy that just made a made a deeper impact. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna uh, dock him for being on the worst team in the league. Who yeah. cares? Uh, so yeah, yeah. But it sounds like we have the same same five there. I mean, he had a hard job. He's scoring thirty out of the post and on mid-range pull-ups, like no, not even getting shots created for him, right? It's not like he's catching dump-offs down there. He is creating his own shot in ways that we just don't often see anymore, especially out of a rookie. And yeah. Pascal was a guy that you talked about really liking in the preseason because he was high IQ. He could sort of, he was versatile. He could sort of do everything. And to see him blossom as a scorer like that, yes, he still needs to add the three-point shot consistently, but I think he had a really impressive rookie campaign. I think he's a contributor going forward. And I think that he will still be able to thrive as more of a role player, which is what he's going to be if the Warriors are actually any good. Yeah. So, and you, you know, I love my Villanova guys. Yeah. Uh, and just, I mean, Pascal, it's the little things. He cuts when he needs to cut just to create that little bit of spacing. I think he's going to play really well with Stephen Clay. And just, I, I feel like uh, just going forward with him, people put a cap on these like second round picks that surprise them. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of like your Brogdon's where people are like, oh my God, he was fantastic his rookie season. Yeah. That's awesome. You got a, you got a perennial role player in this. Like that is such good value. I wouldn't put a cap on Pascal. Like I'm not saying he's going to be an all-star someday, but he is going to get better. I absolutely believe in him developing a three-point shot. So let's move on to coach of the year where I think that there's a pretty clear number one. I think that he really set himself apart pretty early in the season. Who do you have for coach of the year? Yeah, I have Nick Nurse. Uh, I don't think any. I don't think we have to spend too long justifying it. it, it it's ridiculous what he did with this roster, um, and just the talent development. And I just, I think it's obvious. I think it's incredible, um, and I think he should be the clear cut, clear cut number one. Yeah, I mean, if you told me that the Raptors were going to have the third best record in the league, better than the Clippers, even with the load management being a factor there, forty six and eighteen number two defense, and I always think it's incredible with Nick Nurse because this is a guy that came in as an offensive guru and now is such a great defensive coach. Six of their top seven guys have missed at least 10 games. Lowry, Siakam, Van Vliet, Powell, Gasol, Ibaka, and they just kept winning for this entire season. I think it's incredible what he did. So, And also, you know, you mentioned the player development, getting productive minutes out of a guy like Terrence Davis, who was completely unheralded. It's He is unbelievable, and I thought he was in a chair of his own this season. So... Let's move on to number two, where I think we could go any number of directions. Who's your second guy? My second guy was Bud. Um, I just think he used the model of consistency. I don't know if it's going to translate to the postseason. No one does. I also have I also have Spo on my list. I don't have him at three though. Um, my number three was Billy Donovan. I thought. What what he I I've never thought very highly of Billy Donovan, but what he did this year, um, with that re- roster, the way he turns athletic, um, athletic players with with really really low not NBA skill levels mm-hmm. into high level contributors just by focusing on their strengths, yeah, um, and slowly developing those guys. I th- I think it was awesome. I think CP3 deserves a lot of credit for the team success, um, and especially the team success in crunch time. 
But Billy Donovan's a really smart guy. He drew up a lot of really smart things. He helped develop Shea. He's helped developing a lot of young players. And I just think as far as uh, against the expectations, um, he was obviously one of the best coaches in the league right up there with Nick Nurse. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I went hit with him just because I felt like this was a specifically spectacular year with him. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe that's just I'm getting used to how good Spo is. Yeah. Uh, But Spolster was my number four. Who is your number four? My number four is Taylor Jenkins. And I think that the reason for that is sometimes it's tough to sort of delineate between what is contributed by the players and what is the coaches. Like I left Billy Donovan off, even though, you know, they overachieved incredibly this year. They are seated above the Rockets right now. Who in the world expected that? I mean, it's because of a tiebreaker, but still, you know, for the Thunder to be the five seed, I just attribute so much of that to what, I mean, to Gallo playing so well, to CP3, choosing to really elevate these guys, Shea improving. And I think that Billy Donovan definitely deserves credit. Maybe it's an anti-Billy Donovan bias, but he didn't make my list. But the reason that I have Taylor Jenkins is to be a playoff team in the West with a rookie as your best player, it just doesn't happen. I mean, he's, you know, engineered this up-tempo offense, which I think really serves Jaw best because he's just so great in transition. In 2020, 31 games played, the Grizzlies were number four in defensive rating. That's phenomenal, and that just doesn't happen with guys this young. I think that he's shown that he gets good minutes from everyone, from D'Anthony Melton to Brandon Clark to even, you know, as crazy it is to say, in the spots where they've thrown Josh Jackson in there, he's been decently productive. And I think that Jenkins is a great coach. I think that he did an incredible job for his first season. So he's my number four. Who do you have at five? At five, I had LeBron. Um, Nice. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I wrote that I'm not going to give this award to the schmuck that talks for him. <laughs> uh, no disrespect to Vogel. Um, I think he's a good coach, but at the end of the day, they need someone to sit. They need someone to sit in the head coach's seat. Um, I, I think he's highly respected throughout the league, but let's face like within the locker room and on the floor, LeBron's got more sway. Um, so I guess you can call it Vogel, but um, no, let's call it LeBron. Let's call it LeBron for my fifth, fifth guy. Um, I think he's the most respected coach in the league. Uh, I think he's the most important one. So uh, the reason I went with him slash Frank Vogel is just the, 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 I think there was a drop off afterwards, I guess. I didn't see like, I didn't see Taylor Jenkins really. Mm-hmm. Maybe if he overachieved just a little bit more and then there was no one, no one else. Um, of course, other than Brett Brown, who is yeah. definitely considered for this, this post. Um but I just didn't – I didn't see anyone else taking it. Um, and then you got, the, you got the best team – or the best team in the best conference right there. So I was like, uh, oh, why not round it out with that? Who do you have at five? Yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the fair rationale for LeBron slash Vogel. I didn't consider Vogel basically because of the fact that, I mean, you put LeBron as yours. I just think that Vogel has the easiest job in the world. And I – like, compared to Bud, where those are, you know, the two best records in the league, Bud – makes his players so much better and his systems I mean Bud is really an incredible basketball mind and Frank Vogel not so much and I think LeBron makes it makes his players better too yeah I think that that's true my number five I went with Nate McMillan and I I don't know if I feel great about it because I think that McMillan has his flaws as a coach but I think that when you look at the fact that the Pacers were 39 and 26 they were even better without Oladipo because they had a little bit of those transitional bumps and I think that part of what he did well was sort of, 
I guess just letting the players play in some way. I think the fact that he really let the Brogdon Sabonis pick and roll be the majority of their offense for so much of the season, that was just smart. I mean, that was a really productive offense. And you could argue that that's a pretty simple thing to do. But I think that he made the right choice there. I think that they got great production out of their bench with McConnell, with the Holidays, with Doug McDermott. So I just think that he did a good coaching job overall. I really considered Carlisle as well because of the fact that they had the greatest offensive rating ever. I just think that that goes more to Luka and what Luka was able to do. So let's move on to sixth man of the year. Who do you have? And this, I think, is a pretty interesting race. I think that early on, there was a clear front runner who then sort of came down to earth. So who do you have as your number one for sixth man? Uh, Dennis the Menace. So do yeah, I. Um, it just felt like he did a little bit more than Williams or the other candidates this year. Uh, the three-guard rotation was nasty uh, for the Thunder with Shea and CP3. And he's, he's just a dog. And every time I turned on the Thunder game, it was like, oh, there's Dennis making another huge play again. Uh, he, a lot of times he's full-court pressure on the opposing point guard. Um, the raw production looks great. Um, 19 points came on 47. Um, team impact was very clear. He's on a playoff team. And I, I think he went out and earned this one. I think a couple of the other candidates took a little bit of a, like, a little off year, uh, maybe prepping for the playoffs a little bit more. Um, and Dennis was Dennis was awesome. Dennis was a star. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I, it was actually pretty easy for me, this race. Yeah, so, so I had Dennis Schroeder here. I agree. I thought that it was pretty clear cut. You talked about the three-guard lineup. That was the second-best net rating of any – uh, three-person lineup in the league or, you know, any lineup that involves the same three players, plus 28.6 net rating in 401 minutes played. So that's basically over eight games of basketball, and they're plus 28.6, which would be, you know, the greatest team of all time by far. I think that you saw the improvement from three from shooter, shooting 38% from deep. That was big. They were 9.3 per 100 better with him on the floor. And I think that he was sort of liberated by not having to be – you know, a pure point guard because he's playing with CP3 or Shea so much because, I mean, he's really a guy who likes to score first. And I think that we saw that there were some systems in which he's a volume shooter and he can be inefficient. I thought that he got rid of a lot of the bad this year, kept most of the good, and I thought it was a great season for him. So at number two, I have Lou Williams, you know, the sixth man, three-time sixth man of the year winner. I think that what he does offensively is still – pretty much unrivaled. Uh, Schroeder definitely did it a little bit more efficiently this year, but out of the pick and roll with Trez, he's just brilliant as a playmaker to average 5.7 assists off the bench and 19 points per game, 41.6, 36, 86 splits. They were actually 5.7 per 100 worse with him on the floor. They were still plus four overall because they're just a good team, but they were better without him than with him. But I still think as the engine of this offense, he is more valuable than anyone else. So who did you have it to? I had Sweet Lou also. I think he does too much to be lower. Yeah. Um, it's admittedly a down year, um, but it's nothing too radical. He can get a bucket whenever, whenever he wants pretty much from anywhere. That's the most valuable skill in the league. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't want to just reiterate the stuff you said. So Lou's yeah. my number two. Who's your third? My third is his, is his tag team partner, Montrez Harrell. And I think that the reason – even with Lou's incredible deficiencies defensively, he's, I mean, he's abysmal on that side of the ball. And Trez is a guy who gives a lot more effort. I just think that he's so dependent on Lou Williams offensively still. I mean, out of that pick and roll, Lou creates so much for him. And yes, Trez can clean up off of offensive boards and whatnot, 
I just don't think he's a guy who averages 18.6 and 7 on 58% shooting without Lou Williams by his side. And that's why I feel like I have to give Lou the edge over him. Who do you have at three? That's why I, I have Montrez at four. And that's why I want Derrick Rose over him. Okay. I, I, think, I think Rose does way more. Um, I think there are time, there were many times this season when Rose was easily the best player for the Pistons. Yeah. Um, and he, he, I thought his playmaking looked a lot better this year. He was finishing well around the rim, as he always does. Uh, they were better with him on the court. They were worse with both Lou and Montrez Harrell on the court. Uh, obviously, completely different situations. But yeah. um, he does a lot more than Trez. I just think, I think it's very close. But for me, uh, for me – Rose, Rose is more important, and and the production is obviously there. Although he did miss some time, so I went with Rose at three and Trez at four. Yeah, so I totally see the argument for D Rose at three. I actually have Goran Dragic, excuse me, Goran Dragic at four, and the reason for that is basically contributions to winning. He averaged sixteen three and five on forty four thirty eight seventy seven splits for a four seed in the East. And I think that if you look at my top four guys, at least I value guys that are putting up numbers and production on winning teams and I think that too often six man of the year sort of becomes a scoring competition like who can score 20 points per game off the bench and I don't know if that matters as much as a guy like you know I mean there have been great six men that haven't scored a lot of points like Michael Cooper was one of the best six men in basketball and he averaged like nine a game because he's one of the best defenders in basketball and I don't think you know D Rose had a great season so I dirt I certainly see the argument there I just valued Dragic's contributions to winning so do you have Dragic at five? Yeah, I have Dragic at five. Uh, obviously, a much-needed scoring punch for the mm-hmm. Heat off the bench. Mm-hmm. Um, facilitates the offense well. Raw production is there. Uh, there, was obvi- there, were, there were no competitors for me for this spot. I think yeah. there was a clear-cut top five. But why I had Trez and Rose over him was just uh, as far as importance to team, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I consider just because noticing how the Heat played with before Drogic came back, I didn't think Drogic is super entertaining to watch. I didn't think there was a huge difference yeah. um, in how the Heat play. I, I think he's a, I think he's a good piece, but I don't think, I don't know. I think the Clippers and Pistons would lose more in the games that Harold and Rose don't play. Uh, but it's close. The the last three for me were super close. But I went with Drogic at five. I completely agree on the Clippers front with Trez. I just don't think it really matters if the Pistons lose more because they're losing yeah. enough as is. Yeah. So we have one award to go, and then we're going to get into All-NBA and All-Defense. It's Most Improved Player. Another great race this year. I think this yeah. is an awesome year for awards yeah. all around. And, and five, the, at least my players, five really good players. You know, it wasn't yeah. jumping from a nobody to a role player. It, it was like – Yeah. It, it's five really good players. So yeah. I, I, like would, I think there's going to be a lot of different – I agree. I would be very surprised if we have the same order. And I think we'll probably even go our separate ways at number one. So who do you have winning most improved? My one might be controversial. I went with Brandon Ingram. Um, I went with Ingram because I thought a lot of players on the list, which I'll get to later, benefited more from increased opportunity than uh, a skill set or confidence. I think Ingram, the, the hard part with him is that when you look at his raw production over the last few years, it doesn't really look like a, that crazy of a bounce. Mm-hmm. But when you were watching him, I mean, he was a lost offensive threat. Yeah. Clear confidence issues. Um, kind of spit out by the league a little bit. Um, not bust potential, but people didn't really know how he impacted winning at any point in his career. Um, 
really in between two different tiers. And he came out first time all-star um, in the best conference, averages of 24, six and four on 47 and 39 clips, formal defender. Um, they were better with him. I think the next step would be developing more of an alpha dog mentality and really taking over. But I just think from a, refining his game skill set confidence which is what I value the most in these rankings I went with Ingram I thought I mean I watched him live five times this year I think I thought it was really really amazing the different the difference in just the type of player he was um compared to last year where his shot selection was all over the place confidence all over the place production all over the place I'm guessing you didn't go with Ingram at number one where where do you go at number one yeah, so actually I thought for most of the season that Ingram was going to be my selection, and the reason is basically what you've articulated. The raw numbers do not do justice for how much he really improved. He turned into a legitimate number one option on a solid team, a guy that could you know, get you 25 a game essentially. For whatever reason previously, I mean, he wasn't really a guy that was comfortable shooting from three. He turned into a volume-efficient three-point shooter, but I ended up putting him at number two. And the reason is because, I mean, his raw production dropped off a little bit towards the end of the season when Zion joined the party and sort of became their leading scorer for his time on the team. My number one is Bam. And the reason I have Bam is not just because he made the jump to an all-defense level guy. A lot of it is because of what he did offensively, going from a bench player averaging nine and seven to a guy averaging 16, 10 and a half and five. His ability remarkably to you know be at least solid as a guy that can handle the ball a really nice playmaker out of the high post and just a guy who makes a lot of solid reads as a passer and is obviously always been a dynamic finisher inside I just think that Bam's sort of the two-pronged development he's always been a very promising defensive player he really solidified his jump this year and then also the improvement offensively I thought that it was very close between those two but I ended up going with Bam at number one so who do you have at number two I went with Bam at number two and I think he's gonna win this award um but I mean the way the way I describe him was he went from a valuable bench piece to a we have to play this guy type mm -hmm. of guy which is just he's tough as nails um he constant effort production was there great defensive player and he's potentially the, mo the most important player on a four seed um, and he's only getting better the only reason I had him at two is again I just I don't think he added that much to his game I think it was more how Spo wanted to develop him and how he wanted the opportunity curve to you know you know um, and it just for me it, it seemed like Ingram as an individual player progressed more um, whereas with Bam I kind of thought he would he would be something like this once he got that starting role I mean a lot of people before the season were like Oh, Bam's gonna be Bam's gonna be this type of guy now that he has a starting role. So th that's why I went with Bam at two. Who do you go with at two? I too, I have Bi. Um, okay. I for me with Bam, the thing is, I just didn't expect him to take this step as a playmaker and as a guy who's a really good offensive player. So I totally understand Bi. He was, as I said, my pick for most of the season. At number three, I have Devonte Graham, who I think is a guy that for a lot of the season was sort of. I don't know if he was presumed to be the guy that was going to end up winning the award, but had probably the most dramatic improvement as far as jumping from basically irrelevant to a borderline star level guy from 4.7 points per game on 34% shooting to average 18 and seven and a half on 38, 37, 82 splits. He's one of the best pure shooters in basketball off the dribble. The dude is a weapon. He can pull up from anywhere and hit it. Um, eight, they were eight points per 100 possessions better with him on the floor. So I think in um, 
in the traditional sense of going from a guy who's, you know, a fringe rotation player on a bad team to maybe the best player on that team, I think that Graham's improvement was pretty remarkable. So who do you have at number three? Yeah, actually, Graham was the first guy off my list. Um, okay. I went with Luca at three. Okay. Which I see the, argu- I see the argument for Graham definitely, but – I mean, Luca was already transcendent. We all knew that. Um, I think most people would have said that Luca was going to be an all-star this year, mm-hmm. um, all that. But he went from a potential superstar to a flat-out superstar. It's the hardest transition to make in the sport. Um, we know his raw numbers. I just think, I mean, watching him from year one to year two, it was, it was a rookie with a ton of potential and a great feel for the game to someone that literally has complete control of every game he's playing in. He's playing against LeBron James, and he has, has a full grasp of the game. So I went with Luke at three. I know that in the traditional most improved, it might not be the best pick. Um, he was already a fantastic player. But I do think the type of jump that he made is one of the hardest jumps to make. And, I mean, the raw numbers, crazy improvement, efficiency improvement. So Luke was in my number three. Who was your number four? Was Luke on your list? Yeah, Luke is my number four. And I think that you articulated it well. It's the jump from a guy that I actually think that I had him on my all-star team last year. He didn't end up making it. But to go from that to maybe the best passer in the league, a guy that can score 29 a game, and the engine behind the best offense ever by offensive rating, and a top eight player in basketball, that's a dramatic improvement. So I think that he has to at least be on the ballot. Who do you have at number four? I've seen Occam at number four, um, just because I think I think it's another one of those jumps that it, it was really hard to imagine. It's a really hard jump to make, um, and I did not think he was going to develop the offensive arsenal, or at least not this quickly. Score twenty four points a game in the NBA for a really good team, um, all star starter, spectacular on both ends of the court, always gives effort. Got a lot in his bag. Started shooting above the break threes, which really opened him up. Um, and I just again, it's it's those type of jumps that I I'm probably valuing more than most traditional voters will. But that jump to me, first of all, it surprised the hell out of me, and second of all, it's another it's the hardest jump to make from the already star, already highly viewed to getting up to that superstar level as a young player. Um, he did that. Uh, he was voted an All Star starter. Uh, so I went with him at number four. Who'd you go with at number five? I'm thinking about changing my ballot on the spot here because I had SGA, but I think you make a good point. Siakam was a guy that I thought was going to be basically what he was last year for the rest of his career. It seemed like he was a guy that, yeah, going downhill is great. He's awesome defensively. He can make corner threes. But, I mean, the reason I put a ceiling on the Raptors team was I was like, Siakam's not going to be a guy that can score you 24 points a game. And then that's what he went out there and did. And I think that that's really substantive. So – I'm going to change my pick on the spot here to Pascal Siakam. I also think, though, that Jason Tatum makes a very legitimate case because he took a serious jump as well. I think that, wow, there's a lot of good candidates for most improved this year. I'm going to put Siakam. And Reed and Norman Powell are both two other Raptors, yeah. Yeah. So who do you have at five? Five, I had SGA. Okay. Um, so I, I, I almost bought on Tatum, but he was another example of the guy who I just think benefited from more increased opportunity than anything else. There yeah. wasn't a lot of stuff that Tatum had in his bag this year that I was like, oh, he didn't have that in his bag last year. It was more confidence in the, the weird Kyrie situation. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So, but with Shea, Shea surprised me. I didn't think he could score like this in the league. I did not think he could score like this in his second uh, season. I didn't think he would be able to do it um, on a playoff team. His scoring is up nine points a game, uh, approximately nine points a game on a really good team. Uh, he clearly positively impacts winning. He's a really good playmaker on defense. He's another one of those kind of rovers at the guard type. Mm-hmm. Super long, gives a lot of effort. Uh, he's a good passer, and I think he just – it's another – I think he added things to his bag, the three-point shot being the most obvious, the, the set three-point shot for him pretty much. But he does have that little step back. Um, and that's what I valued more than more than someone like Tatum, who I just think – I mean, fantastic player who's given the, the rightful opportunity that he deserves. Uh, yeah. Devontae Graham would be my would be my next guy just because, I mean, from a individual skill standpoint mm. – it's really impressive. But again, I think the the degree of difficulty of the two jumps gives SGA the, the upper hand in this one. Yeah. So as I mentioned, I had SGA here before I went a little bit rogue live on the pod. I think that it, it's not something I expected from him. I, he's a guy that I always placed a bit of a ceiling on. And when people talked about, oh, he'll be all NBA someday, I didn't really see it because I was like, he can't really create his own shot off the dribble. And that's something that he's still working to improve as far as jump shooting but so crafty getting to the rim just moves like a like a serpent out there and he's really difficult to stop when he's when he's trying to get to the rim so I think that he's very a very deserving candidate there so let's move on to the all league segment of the pod we've knocked out all the awards let's talk about all NBA so I'm just going to read out my first team I think that we will probably agree um I have Luka Doncic and James Harden as my guards LeBron and Giannis as my forwards, and Nicole Jokic as my center. For your first team. For my first team. Uh, I have one. I have one difference. I had Lillard ahead of Doncic. Okay, so why did you put Dame above Luca? Um, I think for me, uh, winning obviously matters a little bit less. I think for everybody in all NBA, and I rewarded Dame for it's the best season of his career. Um, he played more than Doncic, not too much more, but more. Um crazy plus minus just the most his teams ever needed him uh can't control a lot of the factors that went wrong for the Blazers but he was spectacular just absolutely spectacular one thing with Doncic although they were better with him on the court so I think uh Doncic based on his based on the games he did play in and their win percentage I think that would have given them if he played all season I think that would have given them a couple more wins um which wasn't I just don't think he was I don't think he was significant enough um, I don't, I don't, I don't want to give Lillard credit just because I feel like, you know, like he, he's been around for a while. This was his best season. He's, he's the elder, he's the more respected. I don't want to do that. And I feel like I'm not being biased. I feel like I just genuinely think Lillard had a better season than Doncic. And I, and the winning impact was there enough for me to kind of disregard the, uh, playoff push that the Mavericks made in the, in the lack of that for the Blazers. So why do you go Doncic over Lillard? I went Doncic over Lillard because I just think that what he did with basically rim runners and spot up shooters around him for them to be a playoff team. And again, maybe you could argue this is more of an MVP argument because part of it is oriented around winning, but I think the raw production 29, nine and nine, I think that, I mean, he's unbelievably efficient from two. He shot like 58%. You look at the floater game and just the creative ways that he finds the score. I just think that he's really a marvel. I think that he's a better player than Dame. And I think that you could really go either way. Dame was spectacular. I mean, average 29, 4, and 8, 46, 39, 89 splits. They were 8.9 per 100 better with him. 
And they were actually a positive plus minus overall with him for a team that was, you know, comfortably below 500. Dame was incredible. I just gave the edge to Luca because I think, um, I don't know. I just, I just felt like he was the better basketball player. Yeah. So yeah. second team, I'll read out mine. I have obviously Dame. I have Chris Paul. I have Kawhi. I have Anthony Davis. And I have Rudy Gobert. Who's your second team? Okay. So I also have Chris Paul, Kawhi, and Anthony Davis. Then I had Bam. Um, so the, the one thing for me was just Bam facilitates the offense for the heat. He's Mm -hmm. the heart of their offense. Yeah. Um, and Gobert, I mean, more than ever this year, I noticed him being almost a liability. He's kind of that, that playoff Ben Simmons sitting in the dunker spot. And you're just like, what, like, what's he doing here other than jamming up off ball cuts and all this stuff. So I just think that Gobert wasn't dominant enough defensively this year to validate him being being above Bam here. But for, other than that, I, I obviously had Doncic instead of Lillard on the second team, and everything else is the same. So why do you go Gobert over um, Bam? So the terms that you put it in are the exact way I thought about it. It's basically is, Bam, is Bam's um, advantage over Gobert offensively more significant than Gobert's advantage over Bam defensively? And initially, I thought yes because of what Bam is as a playmaker, basically. But then I thought, I really do think that Gobert is still special defensively, and Bam is great there. This was a tough one. Uh, It really was. But I just think when you think about the fact that Gobert is still giving you 15 and 14 on 70% shooting, leads the league in screen assists, which people always love to point out because it's like, hey, Gobert is not that bad of an offensive player. He's very flawed. He's very flawed offensively. And outside of finishing and setting screens, he's, as you mentioned, can often be a negative. I just think that he's still the best defensive player on the planet. And I fully understand going either way. I had Bam penciled in, and that was a tough one. I feel like we should also talk about Chris Paul because CP3 is a guy who I think when you're talking about raw numbers doesn't measure up to some of the guys that are probably third-team All-NBA guards or maybe are left off of All-NBA entirely, but averaging basically 18-5-7 and on 49-36-90 splits plus 10.1 on off, which is in that, you know, LeBron, Giannis, really special tier. He's the engine behind a fifth seed. And I just feel like Chris Paul was kind of, to me, a relatively easy second team All-NBA choice, although there were some incredible guards this season overall. So let's go to third team, where I imagine that we will differ a lot because third team was so difficult for me, especially with the guards. I had four guys that I really deeply considered. I ended up going... Lowry, Beal, Jimmy Butler, Jason Tatum, Bam Adebayo. So who's your five for the third team? I went with Butler, Siakam, Gobert as the center, and I went with Lowry and Booker at guards. Booker. Good for you. (laughs) Booker was not one of the four guards that I deeply considered as much as I love him. Just because I feel like if you're going to go for a guy that produced remarkably on a team that was really nowhere near contending – you know, the Wizards ended up being the nine seed, which was pretty incredible. And Beal averaged 30.5, four and six on 45 and a half, 35, 84 splits. So um, we can talk about our other differences, but first off, why did you go with Booker over Beal? Okay, so I'll lay out, I considered a few guys too. Um, obviously, I considered Beal, and then I considered Westbrook, and I considered uh, Booker, and I considered Don Mitchell. Okay. Uh, for the last he played nine more games than Westbrook. Team was six points better without him. The team was worse with Westbrook on the floor. Like, there were a bunch of different things. Nine mm-hmm. percent better true shooting percentage. I, he clear cut best player on his team. 
uh, I won't go into that too much. I, I think he was better than Westbrook this year. I think he deserves it more. Um, Mitchell was another guy debatably the most important player on his team. They were worse with him on the, off the court than on the court. That's huge for me. I don't think he did enough um, to, to, to validate being stuck in here, being, uh, being, being stuck in this third team. Um, and then for Beal with me, it was just Booker was playing meaningful games every single time. And I know, I mean, the Wizards were the nine seed, but let's face it, like the, there was no meaningful basketball left in them. Yeah. They completely gave up on defense. Scott Brooks had no plans of asking Beal to play any sort of defense. That's big. I, I, I just, Booker, I genuinely believe this. I, I, like, I genuinely, genuinely believe that he deserved the third team spot. I think his production is fantastic. They were way better with him on the court. They would have been a winning team, in my opinion, if he could just play the whole game. Um, he competed really hard on defense. He took a jump. Uh, he knows when he needs to take the shot. He knows when he needs to defer. I just, I, I was more impressed with Booker's individual season than any of the other seasons. And it's not in proportion to what I thought he was going to do. I genuinely think he was better than all of them. I think there isn't clear evidence of any of the other three that I considered that they, their team was like way better with them on the court. <laughs> so I don't know. For me, Booker was, Booker was, I didn't even debate it that much after looking into the numbers. Um, so what, what made you not even, not even consider Booker? Well, I did have Booker on my initial list. And then as I really labored over my selections, I ended up sort of cutting him and narrowing it down to four, which was Beal and Lowry, who I ended up taking, and Westbrook and Ben Simmons. The reason that I would have Beal over Booker for that spot is I just think that Beal's offensive production was truly historic. And I think that he did it in a way, like compared to Trey Young, where first of all, it's, you know, one of the absolute, seller uh, of the league I mean one of the absolute worst teams of the league with Trey Young that's not the case with Beal and I also think that Beal was able to score within the flow of the offense he was a guy that was incredible off ball as a catch and shoot guy he was great at creating his own shot getting the line I just thought this was an incredible season from Beal I think that there's an argument to be made that Booker is a better player they're similar as playmakers I think Booker might be a little better there I just thought that for all NBA purposes I felt like I had to give it to the guy that scored over 30 a game um we both agreed on Lowry, who averaged basically 25 and 8, 58.9% true shooting, which is really impressive when you consider the fact that his raw shooting splits don't look as good, 41.7% from the field, 35.5% from three. I don't know if Lowry's going to be a consensus guy, so why did he get the spot for you? Um, I love Kyle Lowry. He just does – I mean, the on-off numbers are weird because they're, they're, they're better with him. Yeah. They've been on the court this year, but uh, I mean – anyone in the organization or any smart media member it will tell you that he's the most important player on the team. So for me, it's just the, the things he does on a consistent basis, the winning plays on a consistent basis. It's remarkable to watch. I love watching him. I think he took a scoring obviously to a little bit of a next tier with Kawhi gone this year. He's never been the most efficient guy, but he gets it done when you need to get him to get it done. Um, very physical one of the best defenders in the league. I just think he was, he was more solid. He was more meaningful. I definitely think Lowry was the cutoff here for that, for, for the tier, tier with Doncic and Paul on the second team. I think the sixth spot was really what was up for debate for me. I, I clearly had Lowry. Uh, do you have anything to add or was that your, your thought process too? Yeah, I had Lowry. I would say, I would say that he was a guy that I considered leaving off, um, but I ended up choosing him just because, I mean, the contributions to winning, you're right, the on-off splits are weird. 
I think that also what he does defensively where he's great and he's a borderline all-defense guy, I think. Uh, the guys that I left off, so I really considered Westbrook just because when you're talking about a guy that averages 27 and a half, eight and seven on a playoff team, that always needs to be considered. They were still good. worse. They were still worth on this worse on the season overall with him off the court. But I do think that I mean he was really unstoppable in the 2020 calendar year. He was getting to all his spots, and I thought it was the best version of Russ that we've ever seen. Um, so he was a tough cut, and then Ben Simmons was a tough cut because. Averaging basically 17, 8, and 8, 58.5% from the field. And, you know, to me, a first-team all-defense guy, a defensive player of the year candidate, that really matters. But Lowry, I would say, was my more comfortable selection. And then Beal, it was very tough. But I gave it to the guy with the historic production. So looking at the forwards, we both had Jimmy Butler. We deviated on Tatum versus Siakam, which I think was a really tough selection and was one I went back and forth on. So why did you end up going with Siakam? Um, I think they, they were close to, by the end of the season, they, they were both about just as valuable to their teams as each other. I just, it, for me, it was just consistency. Uh, see, I can did it all year long. Uh, Tatum was a borderline all-star for me. Um, he didn't really start producing until after that. I didn't really see, I didn't really see the Tatum argument. I think Tatum's a better player. I think Tatum's going to be a better player, but for this specific year, I just think Siakam did more over the course of the entire year. I think it's a lot more important to score 24 a night for the entire year than it is to uh, do the Tatum 20 on not the best splits. And then he obviously scored, like went on a rampage 27 a night for a few weeks or whatever it was. Um, and I, and I know Siakam's can be a little bit up and down. He can have games where he still scores 15. Um, but it, for me, it was the consistency thing all year offensively and defensively haven't had to question the confidence, haven't had to give him an all-star game to get him going. Um, Why do you go Tatum? So this one was incredibly close. If you're looking at the raw numbers, they're almost identical. It's 23.67-3 for Tatum versus 23.67.5-3.6 for Siakam. Their efficiency, they're both at 56% true shooting. They're on, you know, the second and third teams in the East. I think this is really about as close as it can get. Really, the reason I gave the nod to Tatum is, well, one of the factors was they're plus 11 and a half as far as on-off splits with him, which is like really Giannis level. I mean, it's him and Giannis in that tier, which is insane. I'm not going to act like that's the sole determinant because I think that there's probably some unaccounted for variables there. Although he really did begin to carry them uh, in February when he's averaging, you know, 31 yeah. and eight. I mean, that was ridiculous. It sort of came down to, I think, that Tatum's the better player. And at the start of the year, Siakam was the better player. I do think there was a bit of a drop-off because he was averaging – like 27 for a month. And then he sort of fell down into the more like 21 range um, on a night to night basis. I totally get choosing Siakam. For me, the tiebreaker ended up being Tatum is the best player. I think he's the better player between the two. He's the best player on his team. And I wanted to reward that. We both have Jimmy Butler. Um, was Jimmy a guy that you considered? I guess you probably didn't consider leaving him off. I did consider going with the Tatum-Siakam combo. I sort of considered all of those combinations, but why was Butler yeah. worthy of this for you? Well, I did. I think Butler was probably my sixth guy. Um, okay. My sixth four. So I think if Tatum was going to take a spot, it would have been Butler's spot. Okay. Um, but for me, I just think uh, with Butler, you always have to look I don't know. You have to look at his production through rose-tinted rose tinted shades kind of a little bit because what people say about his impact on a team with his intensity, his defense, the little things he does, uh, there's a lot of stuff kind of like Kyle Lowry that won't show up in the stat sheet. 
So a, a lot of my reasoning was just, yeah, yes, he's still a guy, what is it, like 26 and 6 or whatever it is. Yes, yeah. he's still producing. Yes, he's still fairly efficient. I know he couldn't get his three-point shot home, but he's still shooting over 45% from the field. Um, and then he does all the little things to make them win. Yeah. Um, he's, he's an emotional leader. He's a vocal leader. Uh, so I, I went with him. Again, it, it was another big thing about consistency. He's done it all year long. You know what you're getting out of him. Uh, I didn't see that with Tatum. I think Tatum's going to be far and away the best player out of these three, hopefully next year. Um, but for this specific year, uh, that's why I want Butler. So we had very similar rationale. I mean, for me, it's Jimmy is the engine of a top four seeded team. What he does as a playmaker is something that neither T uh, Tatum or Siakam have. And so I think that can sort of negate the scoring disadvantage. His efficiency, he's actually the most efficient because he gets the line you know, he takes nine plus free throws. Yeah. And so his true shooting is over 58%, which is remarkable considering his raw numbers from the field and from three. And I just think that it's, as you mentioned, it's sort of an argument that statistics can't make, but I think that everyone knows how valuable Jimmy Butler is. I think that he's widely regarded as an all NBA guy this season. Also borderline all defense. I think that all three of these guys are borderline all defense. Um, and so I could see people going with any two of the three and, I think that all in all, this is a really solid 15 All-NBA guys. And I don't feel like there's anyone that really looks out of place to me, except you could argue that the centers are a tier below. But I do think that Gobert and Bam both had fantastic seasons yeah. overall and that they deserve to be here for the most part. So it's going to be, I mean, I, I, I am so intrigued to see a hopefully more healthy league next year. Yeah. Kyrie, KD. Steph coming back, Clay, and I mean, these spots are going to get tight. They're going to get really, really tight. So some, some incredible players are going to be left off. And of course, what we didn't even mention is, you know, Gobert and Bam are not going to be seeing many more All-NBA appearances because neither of us had Embiid or Towns, I assume just because of too many games missed. But those guys are basically locks going forward. Yeah. And it's just, it's ridiculous. I mean, the fact that like Kawhi and AD were second team this year, Dame or Luca, one of the two is second team. It's an unbelievable uh, spot that the NBA is in right now. And to go back to your center point, the fact that next year we could have Jokic and Bede and Towns as the three centers on our all-NBA ballot is, I mean, that is ridiculous amount of talent at the center position in the league, more than I've seen in my lifetime as a basketball fan. Um, and coming from five years ago when DeAndre Jordan is a third team all all league center um, to have maybe Embiid as your third team all league center that that is ridiculous. A healthy league is going to fill out a remarkable all all league ballot next year. So we can only hope. We can only knock on wood. Yeah, I agree. I mean, even the all star teams. You know, the fact that Devin Booker had to get in as an alternate in the West with the incredible season he's had. It's it's ridiculous. So let's move on to all defense. The final segment here. First team, I have Marcus Smart, Ben Simmons, Giannis, AD, and Gobert. What do you have? Same. Same as that first name. I don't feel like there's really any controversial point there. Smart was the only guy we didn't really talk about in the depoy yeah. conversation. I think that his versatility, the dog that he is, the Celtics have a top five defense in basketball. I think that he's incredible, and he's got to be acknowledged for what he did. Yeah. I think Smart was a no-brainer, and what made it more of a no-brainer was the four guards that I have on the first and second teams all played under 60 games which was a really refreshing uh, refreshing ranking that I didn't have to take into account the games yeah. played that much. They were all between 50 and 60, so I just uh, – or 50 and 59. So mm -hmm. I just 
I think that it was very easy once that once it became clear that his I think he played like fifty three games that that didn't um, that didn't take away from his value. Yeah, so we agree there. Second team for me was much more difficult, and I really really um, debated my second guard spot, and I really debated my second forward spot. What I ended up doing was Bledsoe, Holiday, Kawhi, PJ Tucker, and Bam. So who are your five? Okay, so I went Bledsoe, Bam, and Kawhi. Okay. Uh, and then I went Kyle Lowry at the second guard spot and Jimmy Butler at the second forward spot. I will say I don't feel great about Butler or Kawhi. I feel like it was a little bit more the precedent that they've set as great defenders in the league than it was their production this year. Um, it's really hard to try to search in your memory for watching them live and looking for their impact, you know, um, because obviously raw stats really don't tell you much about defense. Yeah. So uh, I'm a little shaky on the forward picks. I'm not shaky about Kyle Lowry. Um, I just think he does so, so, so much emotional vocal leader of the defense. will take any charge at any time. will guard anyone, can guard inside out, can guard in the pick and roll, can guard in the post. Um, does way too much for me to leave him off the list. But Holiday's a good pick. I didn't think of Holiday, and he's a sleeper pick. Why do you go with Holiday first and then Tucker? So I had Kyle Lowry penciled in for a while. I also think that Van Vliet makes a legitimate case as the second guard for Toronto. You look at people shot 40.8% against him. He led the league in deflections. He's just such a feisty defensive presence. And then Lowry, you know, he draws the most charges in the league. He's just so smart. And as you mentioned, he's such a leader there. The reason I went with Holiday is, well, first of all, people shot 40.5% against him, which is he had the best differential for any guard between what people shoot against him and what they normally shoot. People are shooting significantly worse from three. He's a guy that is so dedicated to that side of the ball. And I think if you talk to a lot of NBA guards, say that he is the most difficult player to score on. And I do think that that means something. I totally understand Lowry. I don't think that he's quite physically as gifted as Holiday. Holiday's a little quicker, and I think that he can be a little more active sometimes. Mm-hmm. Lowry is great defensively, um, but I went with Holiday, who I think has shown himself, you know, you mentioned sometimes with all defense, the precedent is a factor. Holiday's a guy that's been there a few times, and I think will be honored there again. Yeah. When it came to P.J. Tucker, that was a difficult one because the numbers favored both Siakam and Jimmy Butler. And my first thought was Jimmy Butler. And I considered him very hard. Then I thought about Siakam because people actually had a more difficult time uh, as far as efficiency from the field against Siakam. And you're talking about the fact that he's also part of the number two team defense in basketball with the Toronto Raptors. The reason I ended up going with P.J. Tucker is I don't think that anyone has a harder job or gives more effort, say maybe Marcus Smart. Tucker is guarding such a wide variety of players. He just totally out-rebounds his physical capabilities. He outguards his physical capabilities. He's so smart and savvy on that side of the ball. So I could really see it going any way there. I ended up giving the nod to Tucker because I think that he is the more unique candidate, if, if you will. Jimmy and Siakam have a lot of similar arguments. Tucker is sort of playing his own sport out there when it comes down to guarding everyone. Uh, and then I know you mentioned that Kawhi – It didn't feel like he had his best defensive season, and obviously he didn't. He's Kawhi Leonard. He was, at a time, undisputedly the best defensive player in basketball. But people shot 25.2% from three against him, which is just ridiculous. That's the best differential in basketball versus their normal. And 40.2% from the field, which is the seventh best differential. So I did feel good about Kawhi. 
and then we both agreed on Bam. We both agreed on Bledsoe. Anything that you want to add for those two? No, but just one more thing on the Lowry. I think it did matter to me that, I mean, he played on maybe the best team defense in the league mm-hmm. uh, or one of the top three team defenses in the league. Um, and defense is really impactful, uh, the way he's willing to go anywhere, guard anyone. Um, and then with Holiday, one of the bottom three defenses in the league, a bottom five defenses in the league maybe. So uh, although he's a great individual player, people speak so highly of him, I think there's, there's a difference between knowing how to guard someone one-on-one, affect their field goal percentage, all that stuff is great, um, and then really play effectively in the rhythm of a team defense. Uh, and I think that's super important. So that's why I went, Larry. I don't, I don't really have – I don't think Bledsoe really needs to be defended that much. He's a dog at the center of the best defense in the league. Um, and he doesn't, he doesn't really need the system to be as great as he is. And he's another guy that will guard all over the place, not afraid to get in the post, not afraid to switch on anyone. Right. I, I totally understand the Lowry argument. It's an argument that I was leaning into myself for a while. And it's a close call. I think that these are, you know, really all – my biggest takeaway from this is that there's so much talent in the league. There's not really a player on any of these lists that I feel like doesn't deserve to be there. And the league's in an incredible spot. So that's going to do it for uh, the first episode of the – revitalization of the extremely riveting NBA podcast. We're going to be here, you know, for a while now, and we're going to keep talking about uh, hopefully at some point basketball that's actually going on. If not, we'll do, you know, we'll do mock drafts and we'll cover all sorts of stuff around the league. So that's going to do it for us today. I've been Carson Brever. Carvel Teft was with me today and I uh, hope you enjoyed.